Grace, mercy, and peace be with you from God our Father and from our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. As I told you last week, these two Sundays after Christmas, we are unwrapping Jesus. Just as we were encouraged to do on Christmas Eve to unwrap the gift of Jesus and have him be alive and fully at work in our lives, during these Sundays after Christmas, we are unwrapping this Christmas story. Uh, the story as, as told by Matthew in his gospel about the events that happened early on in Jesus' life. And last week, if you weren't here, we focused on the visit of the Magi, or uh, more popularly called uh, the Three Wise Men. And the point that we made last week was that it was clear right from the very beginning of Jesus' life that Jesus is the new king. The new king. The wise men knew it. Herod reluctantly knew it. But that's why last week's reading ended with these words. Verse 12 said, Being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, and they departed to their own country by another way. And that was in regards to the three magi. Remember, Herod had wanted them to return to him so that he could go and worship this new king also, but ultimately he was trying to trick them in order that he could find out where the new king was. Well, thankfully God alerted the wise men to this trick and they were able to escape. And as they escaped and went back home, you can only imagine that they continuously told people that there's a new king who's been born. Today's reading began in verse 13, which said, Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. For us to get a good understanding of this story, we really need to understand who Matthew is and who his audience is. See, Matthew is a, a, a good Jewish boy and he knows his history and, and his, his uh, people's story very well. And he is writing to a predominantly Jewish audience who also is very familiar with their scriptures, with their story, and with the promises of their Messiah. So oftentimes when we as American readers read Matthew's gospel, sometimes, you know, it seems like Matthew includes just enough of the dramatic details to make the story dramatic, but oftentimes he leaves things out that would be very helpful for us to understand what he means. But one of Matthew's main goals in writing his story is because of who he's writing it to. Uh, people who are of the Old Testament and who know it well uh, we'll see in Matthew's gospel who Jesus is as the promised Messiah. If you were to take Matthew's gospel and stack it on top of the Old Testament, Matthew's gospel fills in a lot of the gaps that the Old Testament leaves for its readers. So Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament. This is what Matthew is saying. And we learned last week that the news of Jesus' birth as the new king is making waves. Last week it made waves with the three wise men who came simply 
in adoration of the new king. But now quickly in the narrative that Matthew tells, it moves from adoration of Jesus being king to attacks of Jesus and even moving to murder from the threatened king, Herod. We can only imagine what it was like that night that Joseph woke up in his dream. They're still in Bethlehem at this point. We don't know how long they were planning on staying in Bethlehem, but they're still there. And, and, and you can imagine Joseph wakes up from this dream and he shakes Mary and he says, Mary, Mary, you got to get up. You got to get up. And Mary says, what are you doing waking? I was just up. I was just nursing Jesus while you were still sleeping, sound asleep and snoring, and now Jesus is asleep. And all the baby books say that when the baby sleeps, I'm supposed to be asleep. Why are you waking me up? Thankfully, Joseph is able to convince Mary of his dream because it says that by night they left. So it makes it seem like Joseph had the dream. He was able to get everybody up, and they left right away. Because Herod is coming quickly, and so they had to leave quickly. You know, we might wonder in all of this, why didn't God come up with a different way? Why did they have to flee to Egypt? Why didn't God find a different way to intervene with Herod? I've titled today's sermon, A Threatened King. And mostly thinking about Herod while titling it in such a way, a threatened King Herod, you know, is threatened that there's this new king on the scene. But in actuality, it makes more sense to call Jesus a threatened king. Right? Just think about what happened in Jesus' life, his entire ministry, his whole life, Jesus was the threatened king. How many times were threats held above him? How many times did they try to kill him before he was eventually crucified? All throughout his ministry, the, the Pharisees and the scribes and the chief priests and the elders of the people were plotting and plotting and plotting how to secretly kill Jesus. Jesus' life was threatened from beginning to end. And here at the beginning, we see it. He is the threatened king. So they fled. I know what it's like to feel threatened and having to flee. I mean, I'm a Minnesota Vikings fan living in Packers country and the Packers just walloped us and so I've had to flee to my homeland. I'm not with you today because I'm in Minnesota where it's nice and safe and secure and the people are nice. All right. In all seriousness though, Jesus is and always has been the threatened king from the beginning of his life to the end. He was never safe. He was never safe. The evil powers of Satan were always at work in this world and they wanted to do everything they could to silence the promised king. And this is what the Bible has said it would always be like for the Messiah. And therefore, Jesus even proves further that he is the Christ, the Messiah, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. The Old Testament is so clear about this. And this is what Matthew's pointing out. And so today, again, we really have to be familiar with the Old Testament to understand who Jesus is. And Matthew helps us out a bit with this. 
Matthew finds significance in this whole story of the flight to Egypt in comparing it to what Hosea says in our Old Testament lesson today from Hosea 11, in which it said, When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. Hosea was referring back to the time that God's people were slaves in Egypt for 400 years. Remember this? When Joseph had been sold into slavery by his brothers and then eventually they settled in Egypt. They lived there for 400 years. And then God called them out with Moses, called them out of slavery to bring them to the promised land. And in that time, they were like a new child. Out of Egypt, my child was called. And so, Matthew sees in all of this that Jesus, who is the fulfillment of the entire life of Israel, he too is the child that will be called up out of Egypt. The story goes on though. In verse 16, Herod quickly realizes that after the wise men don't return to him that he's been duped, he's been tricked. Or the best Greek translation is he was made a fool. (laughs) He was made to look like a fool. That's the most accurate way to translate it from the Greek. He was made to look like a fool. How quickly the tables have turned. Herod was trying to trick the wise men and make them look like a fool, but he has been tricked in all of this. And the way Matthew tells the story so rapidly is that we get the the sense that Herod responded quickly and abruptly with with a rage and a fury. He makes an announcement that every child, every, every boy in Bethlehem who is two years old or younger, so everyone under the age of three, every boy would need to be killed in Bethlehem. Now we don't know exactly how this happened, but we don't, we don't need that detail. We also don't Uh, know exactly how many boys were killed in Bethlehem. Uh, But Bethlehem was not a large town, smaller than Houghton even. Most commentators say that likely somewhere between six to ten boys were killed in this event. Some commentators have it as high as 30. So whether or not you want to say that was a significant event or not, I guess is up to you. But the point is still significant. And Matthew finds great significance in this story, and this is why he includes it in his gospel. So Matthew takes us back to the Old Testament once again. So put on your Old Testament hat. And Matthew says this, This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they were no more. All right, bear with me here. Let's go back to the Old Testament. If you don't know the Old Testament uh, well, you know, just stay with me for a second. Again, Matthew's readers, they know this story. They know this history. This is their family history, so it makes sense to them. But when Matthew says this is what Jeremiah said, Jeremiah was talking about the northern kingdom of Israel, the ten tribes of the northern kingdom, which were sent off into exile by the Assyrians, and after exile, they were, never, they, were, they were never reestablished. The southern kingdom of Israel, they too would be sent into exile with the Babylonians, but later would return and reestablish the north. They were just no more. They are no more. 
They're no more. So what Jeremiah is saying is he mentions Ramah, which is a city. That's where the northern kingdoms assembled. That's where the Assyrians had them assembled before they brought them into exile. And Rachel, Rachel is, is, is used as the image of the mother of the nation, the, the favorite wife of Jacob who so greatly longed for children. Now she is the voice of weeping and loud lamentation as she figuratively looks upon all of her descendants and they are no more. Matthew's making the point that it was the sin of Israel that led them to be wiped out. And so Matthew's even saying it is the sin still of God's people that's led them to have this furious and brutal king called Herod and that it's led to this terrible event of the slaughter of the innocent children. If you want to find an optimistic outlook on this story, some Christian commentators have said with the death of these newborn boys, that maybe we could even consider them to be the first Christian martyrs. Well, Herod dies. This Herod dies, and an angel appears to Joseph, as the angel said they would, and tells Joseph that they can return. Well, this Herod, uh, his son takes over for him, and that son is just as brutal. And Joseph, on the way back, hears about that. And Joseph says, I'm not going back to Bethlehem. We're going home to Nazareth. You remember from Luke chapter 2, that's actually where Mary and Joseph were both from, was from Nazareth. You know, as much as Herod may have been the threatened king, Jesus is the one who was always threatened. Jesus is the king whose life was always threatened from beginning to end from beginning to end. And finally, at the end, they breathed out murderous threats against him and actually took his life. But Jesus did not stay dead. Jesus rose from the dead and he is the living and victorious king for all of eternity. But Jesus was clear with his disciples that for his disciples to follow after him would also mean that they would face many of the same threats. I mean, the Bible says that it would never be easy for us. The Bible says those of us who want to follow Jesus need to take up our cross daily and die to ourselves in order to live in Jesus Christ. I mean, it went on and on for even the disciples of Jesus. Every one of them were martyred for their faith. Even in Acts chapter 9, it says that Saul, who would later become Paul was breathing out murderous threats against the Christian people. You know, I think in our daily lives, um, maybe some of us feel threatened for believing in Jesus, but I don't think here living in America we experience the daily threats of what it means to be a Christian. However, we need to remember that, that a, a, a big, big piece of our Christian family in this world, right now, are, are facing threats of imprisonment, of even death, for simply believing in Jesus Christ. Can you imagine it? We need to keep them in our prayers in order that God will deliver them and allow them to live in freedom. But also we need to learn from our persecuted 
Christian brothers and sisters throughout the world. Because I think many of our Christian brothers and sisters understand even more so than we do that our King is alive. Our King Jesus is alive. This is not just a nice idea. It's not just a nice idea. This is the truth of the universe. Who rules the universe? Our resurrected King Jesus. And we are part of his kingdom as his beloved children. There may be threats against us in this world by Satan and his evil foes, but any threat against us is simply an empty threat. An empty threat. Satan has no power over us who are in Jesus Christ and who are alive in him. Satan's threats are empty because Jesus is alive Jesus has conquered death. Jesus is victorious. Jesus is our living King now and forever. We worship our living King. His name is Jesus. And he was born into this world for us. Find your life, your hope, your peace, your joy, your everything in your living King, Jesus the Christ. Amen.